Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pot of thunder and rock and roll, and it's 4th of July weekend, so happy 4th to all of you uh, American listeners, and what better way to kick it off than a good old American Duff McKagan joke of the week. Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan calling you. I'm actually calling you during your big fancy TV show, you know, but uh, I just really couldn't wait. You know, uh, my wife asked me, you know, what I do here at home in case of a, you know, what steps I take in case there's a, a fire here at home. Really big ones apparently wasn't the right answer. Thank you very much. Goodbye. All right. A little bit of a groaner there, but uh, thanks to Duff for getting our weekend started with a laugh. He's going to be hanging out at home this weekend. No touring with Guns N' Roses because of the Rona. But there's a couple of silver linings from this crazy pandemic, like quarantine, for one, that's quarantine with a K. Uh, if not for the coronavirus, you wouldn't have a non-makeup era Kiss cover band featuring myself and Bruce Kulik. And that means you wouldn't have this killer cover of Heart of Chrome. I'm going to play it for you right here, right now.
new single from Quarantine. That's our version of Heart of Chrome with the amazing Bruce Kulik on guitar. It's out now. You can see the video on YouTube, and you can get Heart of Chrome and No, 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 the first song we did, which is number 60 on the mainstream rock charts. I sent that to Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley that No, No, No uh, is charting in an American rock and roll uh, you know, a radio chart in 2020. It's pretty damn cool. So you can get all of those tunes, both those tunes on iTunes, uh, Amazon, Spotify, wherever you get your rock and roll music. So, all right, thank you so much. If you're staying at home this weekend as well, because uh, you live in an area that's back in lockdown because the virus is spiking and surging, then come hang with me tomorrow night for the Saturday night special. We'll celebrate the 4th with some drinks, a little Q&A. That's E-H for A, and, of course, the sing-along. So get your questions and song requests together and join me on Facebook Live or on my official YouTube channel tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Eastern. Right now, though, we're going to get into a little true crime with uh, Billy Jensen, true crime journalist, author, and host of the Murder Squad podcast. He's going to share some of the crimes he's helped solve over the last 20 years, how he was able to do it. Uh, He's also talking about the new HBO documentary series, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, about a little-known serial killer called the Golden State Killer, who I believe was just charged this past week. Billy was involved in that documentary because he helped write the book that the doc is based on. It's a bone-chilling, crazy story. You'll hear all about that in the incredible case of the Golden State Killer. Michelle McNamara was the true crime writer who was investigating and writing about the Golden State Killer case. She actually coined the name, but she passed away before finishing All Be Gone in the Dark. So Billy stepped in, a close friend, uh, to finish the book and help with the documentary, which just started airing on HBO this week. So let's get to the true crime uh, stories from uh, journalist Billy Jensen. Hear about some of the fascinating cases that he's helped to solve. It's true crime. Talk is Jericho right here, starting now. So one of the, um, of course, you guys know something we love to talk about here on Talk is Jericho is the true crime element and all of the kind of crazy stories that surround that. Um, but as long, it, it seems like it was years ago, but at the start of, um, of, of kind of the COVID era, there's a couple of great shows on Netflix. One of them, of course, that everyone was talking about was, was Tiger King. Another one was Don't F with Cats. And that kind of kicked off the idea to have Billy Jensen on, who is an investigative journalist and who also, have, you've gone... F- far and above beyond just being a journalist and kind of actually started to try and solve some of these crimes on your own. Yeah, no, I've solved uh, or helped solve 10 murders using social media and finding missing persons. And that's sort of what I've become. I've become kind of like a consulting detective for not only victims, families or consulting digital detective for victims, families and also police departments. When they get stuck, they call me. Which is interesting because if you look back kind of like in the 70s or whatever, they would go for the psychics and that sort of thing. But now... The modern day psychic is kind of like you said, the guys who know how to kind of run and, and go through and comb the internet for clues and all these sort of things. So tell us, how did you start getting into this and how did you solve 10 separate murders? Like, tell us about the first one that you solved that got you into this. Yeah. So, you know, my friend was uh, writing a book, you know, I'd, I've been writing about unsolved murders for 20 years. And the thing about writing about unsolved murders is, is that you're you're writing stories with no endings. And you'd always try to solve them, and you'd always try to push the case forward, but you know you you had no endings. And uh, my friend of mine was writing a book about the Golden State Killer, and she passed away in the middle of of writing it. And and right after she passed away, I just got really. I would always say, whenever anybody asked me why I did this, I would say, I hate the guy that got away with it. That's why I do this. But I also just, you know, after she died, I hated. I just something just just really triggered me, and. and I was up late one night 
I saw this video of this man being attacked in a street in Chicago. And he, um, there was video from a 7-Eleven, and the guy is confronted. He tries to walk away. This bigger guy starts uh, chasing after him. And then the guy turns around right in front of the street, and the guy clocks him, the bigger guy. And he falls into the street completely out cold. Then um, a bunch of people, as they're going to do, they, they gather around him. This big guy looked like he was probably 6'3", 250, walks back and yells at everybody. You can't see it. You're just watching this from a traffic camera now, but you can tell that he's yelling at them because everybody disperses. And he's laying there in a crosswalk. Two minutes later, a cab, not knowing he was there, runs over his chest and kills him. Oh, wow. And I'm watching this video, and there was really clear video of this perp. And I was just like, well, why... You know, it was two months later when I'm watching the video. I'm saying, why don't they know who this guy is? How can they not figure this guy out? And um, I'm looking at at his family and his family was doing a press conference and like they still didn't know who this was. And then I was something clicked and I said, I know why, because nobody's watching the news. Nobody's watching, you know, news is so fragmented now. Initially, 50 years ago, it would be on three television stations and it'd be in the newspaper, which everybody would read. Now they don't. And I said, well, you know what? I think I can do this with social media. And I reached out to a bunch of of people and I created a Facebook page called The River North Puncher with his images, created a, um, a Twitter, sent the tweet out, and then begged everybody in Chicago because what I was what I was thinking was was like this had gotten national news, but it wasn't. I didn't care about any. I just cared about the one square mile around there. Somebody would be able to recognize this guy, and sure enough, you know, I posted the video. I got a retweet from a um, a guy uh, named uh, Barstool Big Cat, which was great from the Barstool Sports team. And then right. two days later, I got a. Somebody retweeted back to us or replied to us and said, I hope this helps. And it was a front facing picture of the perp. And I didn't, I was amazed. And I thought maybe this guy had done sort of some sort of computer imaging to make it look like, you know, um, he just took the picture from up high and black and white and then made it color. And I was just like, well, where'd you get this? And he wouldn't, and I, I was like, please DM me, please DM me, finally DM. And he said, actually, my friend took it and he was there and he sent me a video and the video is the most chilling thing I've ever seen. It starts with the victim, Marcus Gaines, on the ground in the crosswalk, the last image you'll ever see of him. And then it swings up, and then the the puncher is walking right towards me. And Oh, my gosh. And I said, wow, this guy was there. And I was asking him, like, did you do? Did you hear anything? Uh, did, you hear, did he have an accent? Did he have this or that? But now I had a front-facing picture. And Cook County actually puts all of their mugshots online. So I just went through, and the guy had a very distinctive widow's peak, like a Dracula kind of thing. He was a big, tall, black guy, had a widow's peak, and his victim was was a um, a, a bartender who was also black. And um, just with everything I was reading about this guy, he just seemed like the most, just a great guy, great dancer, impeccable dresser. He was a bartender. Everybody loved him. Not a bad thing to say about this guy. And I um, I go through, and then I find three guys that could be it. And it was almost like Goldilocks. It was like one could have been too old, one one was too short, one was too tall. Because I couldn't quite see it at the time, how tall this guy was. But I uh, I thought this guy 
was the guy. His guy's name is Marcus Moore. I got his photograph and I actually went to Chicago and led toward the streets. Third guy I saw said, yeah, we call him Big Dummy. His real name is Marcus. And then from there, I sent all the, I put together a dossier, gave it to the police department and the police didn't do anything. So then it was a matter of me having to go constantly contact the police department saying, I know where he is because now that I had his name, I had his Facebook page and I was able to track him via Facebook. And he was saying that he was in Holbrook, New York, but I knew he wasn't in Holbrook, New York because he had taken a picture uh, or somebody had taken a picture of him and there was a city works truck in the back and it had a logo. I identified the logo and the logo was a Minneapolis works truck or a Twin Cities works truck. So I, so I said, He's in Minnesota because I know that because his brother's in Minnesota. And then he just said, you know, he could do the relationship status on Facebook. He got in a relationship with a woman from Minnesota. So I had his address from where his brother, I was like, he's there. He's there. Finally, after begging and pleading about four months later, uh, the marshals went in and got him. So um, that was the first one. And, you know, it's been a lot of, uh, you know, some successes, a lot of failures, but it works. And it's just a matter of targeting people in that area. Now what I do is I create geo-targeted advertising where I will get a image of a crime uh, that the cops are just like, they're, they, they're baffled with. They have an image of the person or a sketch and they don't know who it is. And I will buy targeted advertising in that one mile radius of where the crime happened. And then people will contact me and then I funnel it over to the police. I mean, once you kind of solve one of those things, then you probably have a little bit of steam to where they're going to believe you more and listen to you more. That's exactly right. And that's the whole reason why I wrote the book, too. It was a matter of let's teach everybody to fish. And it was, you know, I I was doing this with my own money. I was like, I've spent like 25 grand with my own money just doing it because these ads cost money. Right. So as I was, you know, searching for this or that, and there were some that like, I just thought there was one guy that killed a woman in New York. The video was so clear, and um, it was in Owl's Head Park, Brooklyn, and the video was so clear of this guy walking down the street. I thought, I'm going to get this guy in a week, and I've spent probably like 3500 bucks, and I still haven't gotten him. Gotten so many tips, so many leads, been working with the cops with that one, and it's just, um, you know, it's a constant sort of struggle in order to try and find these guys, especially in a place like New York, too, which is so dense, but when you get a place that's a little bit smaller you have people just just willing to help and willing to willing to reach out because I'm not a cop and they're willing to just talk to me over Facebook as opposed to like calling up a number, you know, for Crime Stoppers or something. It's interesting too because even in the state of the world right now with all of the the unrest that's going on on the streets of America was caused by, you know, basically a cell phone video capturing this horrendous murder. So it would seem that as a as a criminal it's harder and harder to get away without being filmed. But what you're saying is even if you get a capture of a guy's face, it still doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to be easy to find. Yeah, no, he's not. And, uh, you know, if this was, we do have a lot more people, you know, obviously when a cop is, is killing somebody, which is what they did when, when these four cops murdered this man, George Floyd, he was, you know, the cops were there and they can, you know, they was on, you know, most murders don't take that long. You know, eight minutes right. they were they were on this guy. And um, that's enough time to get out a cell phone. But a lot of, t- you know, and cell phones are really good to record stuff with because the cameras are amazing. But a lot of times you're also dealing with cameras that are from up high and they're grainy and they're, there's just a lot of, of things that make it harder. But there's still always one clue in there. You know, I was able to identify a guy that was wearing a Halloween mask 
And, you know, just there's always like you can look at let's look at his shoes. Let's look at the way he moves. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to just be a face. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, the, the book is uh, Chase Darkness with Me, which is a great title and um, lots of interesting tidbits and stuff. I, I, and once again, I started this to talk about Luca Magnotti, but we can get to that in a bit. You mentioned the Halloween mask murderer. Tell me that story. Yeah, this this guy was working on his day off at a Jack in the Box. And I saw this video of this guy, another guy, comes into the Jack in the Box, kind of leaps over the counter where the registers are. You see him pull out a gun. Then you see him leap back out. In the interim, you didn't see the murder on camera, but he shot this victim. And... His name was uh, Juan Vidal, looked like a great guy. You know, he's a big like Smiths and Morrissey fan, Latino guy and, uh, in L.A. And um, I was just, I saw that and I was like, well, well, is there anything I can do with this? And it had been a few months and I said, well, let me just try it. And, you know, I was asking people and I would go to places like Reddit and say, does anybody recognize these shoes, uh, these sneakers? But they were so... It was so pixelated that actually on Reddit, because Reddit has a lot of jokesters, somebody wrote like, yeah, those are the uh, pixel pixel 12s or something, which is funny. But um, right. because you get a lot of you get a lot of people like like trying to make jokes. But, it, you know, if a joke is going to be um, be funny, at least, you know, it, it'll boost the algorithm. Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, it was just a matter of just putting it out there and triangulating because I had learned later that he had done a another crime with a similar MO. So first I was like trying to identify the Halloween mask. And then I was looking at the way this guy was moving. He jumped over the counter so quickly and so swiftly. I was like, this is not a older guy, not even like a 25 year old, you know, unless they're really, really good shape. I was like, this is going to be a younger guy. And, you know, being able to target the ads to people that might know this person, you know, to younger people. And that's what happened is, is that, you know, somebody saw it and uh, saw the car, you know, the car that they were that they were driving in the getaway car. They had seen that as well, and then they were able to pick him up. And then I think two days later, they picked up the uh, the guy that was driving the getaway car. And that's all. How long did it take for you to figure that one out? That was probably three months. I think it took a while. Yeah. So how does this come to your attention? Because I mean, there's murders every single yeah. day. Which are the ones that kind of sparked your interest to think I can do something with this? Yeah, I mean, I always, with those two, I always, you know, if I see it and if I see a clear piece of video, um, you know, I have Google alerts and everything for it. So there's three ways that come about. One, it's me looking for them because people still don't know. Most people don't know who the hell I am. So they'll see it. I'll see a piece of video and I'll say, that's pretty, you know, they should be able to find that guy. And I, and I put it in a folder and I wait two weeks. Most of the time they find him. Mm-hmm. If it's after two weeks, I'm like, you know what? Let me call up the police and, and, and explain what I do and then say, hey, what do you want? Now, sometimes the police say, no, no, no. We know who it is. We just haven't made an arrest yet. Chill out. And I'm like, yep, chilling out. It's okay. Sometimes they say yes. Uh, sometimes police will have heard of me and will contact me and say, hey, we heard you did this for this department. Can you do it for us? And then sometimes it's victims, families. You know, In general, it's, it's always going to be better with video because video does so good on social media. A sketch is is okay when you get into cars. I mean, certain. I don't. I've been able to identify a car that there's only three hundred of them in uh, registered in L.A. County, which they should be able to narrow down which you know an owner and take it to. You know, I'm not quite sure how the whole cars thing works. I have not had luck like just identifying someone just strictly from a car, but 
you know, if, if a family member calls me up and, and asks me, hey, could you try? I'm, I'm still going to try. Some of these stories end on more of a positive note. You said that you found a girl missing in the California Redwoods, which is a huge forest. I'm sure not an easy task. How did you manage to do that? That one was such a heartbreaking story for this mother. I had worked on the case of um, Danielle Bertolini, who went missing in Northern California. And then a year later, her skull was found. And I, I was talking, you know, then I'm, I'm on Facebook and I get a message from uh, a friend of her mother saying her other daughter is missing. I was like, oh my God, you oh know, my like, what else does this, this woman have to go through? So I contact the mom. I'm like, okay, let's figure this out. I'll put an ad out, but this is a missing persons thing. I've never done a missing persons thing before. While we're talking, she's like, I think this might be like, she had a phone number of somebody he might, she might be with. And, you know, the, yes, there was a history of drug use and things. I'm thinking, like, if she's with a guy, I can't just call him up. He's going to hang up on me and then block my number. So I start texting right. him. And I text him just things like, hey, things that either a girl would say or somebody that was looking for drugs would say. Right, 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 right. So, yeah, you know what I mean? Just sort of like, so he's always going to be like, hmm, who's this? So I get him on the hook. So he knows that if I call, he's going to pick up. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I started to coordinate with the mom and then I called him up and I said, listen, where, you know, we know who you are. Like, where is she? And he said, um, oh, she, you know, like, and then finally I was able to get her on the phone. I was like, listen, you know, you don't want to do this, you know? And she said, she said, okay. And she went straight to the, um, we matched her up with a police officer down there and we're able to do that. And now she's, she, she went to rehab and everything. And then she had a baby and, and that's the one of the the, the good feel good stories there because I was telling her too I was like listen I need you for to help solve your sister's murder because I'm still on that mm-hmm. and I need your help with that you know if you don't want to obviously that's you know the opioid epidemic is huge too seventy thousand people die every year it's just like if you don't want to stick around for that it, stick stick around for yourself stick around for your sister you know so she was going to kind of run away and I don't a, we don't know you know I didn't get into it you know I wasn't gonna gotcha. you point, know. point being she wasn't at home she wasn't she at was home she was somebody about to taken her you know who this dude was yeah. and everything but yeah so yeah well that's that man and did you ever solve the murder of her sister I think I know who did it or at least the two guys that mm-hmm. did it and this is just one of those deals where they just don't have enough evidence but I'm just staying on it I talk with the um the family members all the time and uh, it's more than one. It's more than one murder up there. And this is in the, um, you know, what they call the Emerald Triangle up there in Northern California. Is that frustrating for you when you pretty much know who it is, but you can't get the right evidence to to bust them? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's one of the things that people have to realize when you're looking at law enforcement is that a lot of times they just, they, they have to, they have to have so much evidence that they're going to convince 12 strangers that this person killed another person. So you need to have, and you can't you can't just go in and just say, oh, we tried and then try again because there's double jeopardy law. So um, it's a big, big process to do that. And you have to have so many ducks in a row. And there's a lot of criminals that are out there that they know the cops have a pretty good idea or are com- you know, 99% sure, but they just can't do anything because the DA won't, you know, the DA knows that like there, there might be one juror in there that could throw a wrench in and they're just saying just, Get me this one last, that last thing, this one piece of evidence. Sure, you can roll the dice, and there are some DAs that will be, you know, that sometimes a cop will go to a DA and say, hey, listen, we, this is all we can get. We, we can get this guy. Some DAs that are a little bit more confident uh, will say, yeah, let's do it. Some are a little bit more cautious and say, listen, we still need more. 
just kind of going through some of the the highlights of the book that that are really kind of interesting stories. Before we kind of latch onto some of the longer ones, you said that you investigated the only other murder in New York City on nine eleven. Yes, and the other and the and, and and when you say the only other murder, the other murder is the thirty five hundred people that died in the towers, sort of yes, thing. Or of course, yeah. And gotcha. no, the murder was of a um, a Polish immigrant named Henrik Shiwiak, and he had he had actually gone looking for work in Manhattan that morning. And while the towers were going down, he was still knocking on doors. I mean, this guy was desperate for work. And he eventually, he got a job through an ad cleaning supermarkets in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn. And he got off at the wrong stop. It was at night. He was wearing kind of like uh, army surplus clothes. And he had a backpack and he was didn't know where he was. He was knocking on doors. He was looking for a supermarket. He was on the complete other end of the street. And somebody shot him. <sighs> Nobody talked about it. You know, and it was and it was never solved. The police actually got there pretty quickly. But, you know, I that was the first unsolved case that I ever did. And I remember going there to Bed-Stuy and knocking on doors and talking to people and getting information that even the police didn't. I felt like I was pushing the investigation forward, talking to, you know, I was just like, you live three doors down. Did the police ever contact you? No. What did you hear? And then had the number of shots. And I heard it, you know, could be this or this. And but they never it was just one of those deals where the police never got there and it's you know if they ever find that gun uh, i remember them saying it was an odd caliber gun if they ever find that gun maybe that's the only way that they would ever uh, be able to match it up or if somebody ever confesses so that was never uh, solved then no that one was never solved no talk about bad timing you know, or good timing depending on how you want to how you want to look at it of, of, of a murder that happens on 9-11 yeah you know i think it's when you think about it, it actually got me thinking of of other crimes that were committed during acts like this, you know, dur- during big moments in history and what else sort of got, you know, unsolved or solved that got, you know, swept under the rug or nobody would hear about it, you know, during the DC sniper case, which was all over Maryland and um, in Virginia, there was a, a woman who was fighting with drug dealers and the drug dealers burned her house down and killed her whole family. And uh, it was like those kind of cases that are are out there, you know, and there's going to be some I'm sure that have happened right now with the unrest that we've just seen and the protests, which the protests were rightfully so. And they should continue going. Uh, you, you know, you're going to see some crimes that are going to be not get the attention that they deserve because the headlines are being dominated by other stuff. Let's talk about All Be Gone in the Dark, the book you helped finish after your original author and your close friend, Michelle McNamara, passed away. The book was about a little-known serial killer who was caught shortly after the book came out. It's also been turned into a documentary series at HBO. So we'll get into all of that. But first, I want to say thanks to Diamond Dallas Page and DDPY for helping our physical health and mental well-being during this crazy time in the world. I know a lot of you might not be ready to go back to a gym, coronavirus resurging in some places, forcing more lockdowns or maybe you don't want to work out while wearing a mask which is the case in some places as well so if you feel like you just rather stay at home and get your workout on download the ddpy now app and get started do it now because ddpy is a great program for all ages and skill levels hundreds of workouts that you can do at your own pace in the safety and comfort of your own home serious cardio workout easy on the joints and dallas is so sure you're going to love this program i know i do he's going to give you a seven day free trial just download the DDPY app and get started. I got the app on my phone. I literally do DDPY everywhere. I've done it backstage at AEW, uh, in the dressing room at Fozzie, hotel rooms, my own living room, my front yard. Like I said, you don't have to wear a mask or worry about social distancing with DDPY. 
You can connect the Bluetooth heart monitor as well to the app. It's going to keep track of your workout data, your history of the workouts. And you can do live workouts from the DDPY Performance Center in Smyrna, Georgia, where we filmed the Judas video, over 40 million views on YouTube, which is great. Uh, and you can also stream the app to your TV so you can do the workouts on your big screen. You don't have to squint down into your phone. So all of these things can be yours and can be accessed. If you download the DDPY app today, you can do it on iOS or Android. Start your free seven-day trial, choose a workout, and get going. Let Dallas and DDPY change your life like he has for thousands and thousands of people, including Le Champion. Get on the path to healthy living and stay there. Start today. Just go to ddpyoga.com slash Jericho. That's ddpyoga.com slash Jericho. Do it now and get in the best physical and mental shape of your life. So let's talk a little more about your book and how you kind of took it over or, or, or after uh, another crime reporter passed away, were these some cases that she had been looking at or did you get inspiration to try and do this kind of as a tribute to her? No, that was just the inspiration. It was more of a just just a being fed up. You know, it's just like we write these stories and I know how long she was writing a story about the Golden State Killer. Her name was Michelle McNamara and uh, mm. it was just a matter of you know, not only the family and the and the and the victim's life, but also just people that have de- devoted like so much time in order to solve this mystery that this guy is keeping to himself and just taking other lives away. And you know, she was um, she was so dedicated to this book, and that's why I was just like, and I've got to help finish this book. So I called up her her husband, who's the comedian, Patton Oswald. Oh, and wow. I said, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. And I said, um, I'll do anything I can, you know, to help uh, with this book. So myself and Patton and her researcher, Paul Haynes, uh, we got together and we finished the book. It's called I'll Be Gone in the Dark, yeah. She didn't pass away um, due to any type of, of crime investigation. No, she, she passed away in her sleep. Gotcha, gotcha. So- Let's go into it because I know that that according to the book that Michelle was pursuing the Golden State Killer, and you you helped finish the book. Did you ever kind of find? First of all, tell us who the Golden State Killer is, and and the story behind that. Yeah, the Golden State Killer, one of the worst serial killers that you never heard of. And, right. Um, think about what this guy would do. Initially, he started with he he uh, with break-ins and peeping toms, and then he started raping women, and then he started getting off raping women. Uh, with their husbands in the house. So he would come in with a gun, he would tie up the husband and put put him on his back and put plates on his back and and then say, if I hear these plates move, I'm going to kill your wife, then come in here and kill you. And then he would oh take gosh. the woman into the other room and then rape her. And then he would just kind of like chill out in the house and eat and then take weird stuff and then leave. He eventually graduated to murder and he murdered at least 13 people that we know of and raped at least 50 um, in, in, in similar manners like this. And this was in, first it was in the Sacramento area, then um, the murders were around Sacramento, but then they would also drop down to the Ventura area in Orange County. So he had two names. They didn't know this was the same guy. He was killing people down there and killing people up there. Uh, his name in Sacramento was the East Area Rapist. His name down, down south near Los Angeles was the original Night Stalker. And those are two just bad names, you know? I mean, you know, just being, as, right. you know, it's like, I'm sure you've been right. being in wrestling, you know, like the names is like so often a big deal. And it's just like, these names, it's just like east of, east of what? East area of what? You know, that's not going to get, and then original Night Stalker, you mean there was another Night Stalker? And obviously they're talking about Richard Ramirez, but like, it's, it's, it's two awful names. 
And I said, well, you know, um, you know, Michelle said, I want to rename this guy. And people were like, really? You know, and I even me was like, no, I don't even before, you know, I knew her. I was like, I don't, I don't know why she would do this. But she named him the Golden State Killer. And because of her work, it stuck. She wrote an article in L.A. magazine and then she got a book deal from that. And, you know, people started calling him the Golden State Killer when she passed away. He was still out there, but her her death became international news because of who she was married to because of Patton. And she was also an amazing writer, but because of the, of Patton. So it was in people magazine. It was in all these different places. It was international news. You know, two months later, they decide to, you know, add more reward money. They say, we're going to work more with the FBI, all of the, all of this, these things and like reinvigorate the case. You know, a lot of that had to do with, with her, you know, her dying and then people writing, yeah, there was a, there was a housewife that was trying to solve a case and, you know, the police saying, well, maybe we should put more effort behind it and solve this case. So, you know, when I, I actually met Paul Holes, who's the guy who eventually solved the case at Michelle's memorial and he had been working on it forever. And it was just, you know, her memorial was just such a surreal scene. You know, I just lost a really good friend and, you know, because of, of who she was friends with people like, like, you're in a, you're at a memorial for a friend and like Weird Al is there and Conan is there right. and John Mulaney and, and Amy Mann and all these people. And, um, you know, I start talking to Paul, I gravitate towards Paul and we start talking about cases. I start telling him about this case that I'm working on, which was Bear Brook, which is the Allenstown four case, which is four bodies found in barrels in Allenstown, New Hampshire, uh, in 1985 and in 2000, a woman, three children, all unidentified, um, perp unidentified. And we start talking about DNA. And I was just like, yeah, we start talking about familial DNA. And I put that kind of in his head. And then we went off and then he gave me thoughts about the case. And like, we started a little bit of a, a rapport together. Uh, turns out a few months later, he's on the phone with people who had, who had figured out how to identify the killer of those of the woman and three children. And he learns about familial DNA and learns about this woman, Barbara Ray Venter, who's able to take the DNA from a crime scene, put it into a public database, and then see if you could find any relatives and then work a family tree down to try and find the perp. They do that together. They land on a guy named Joseph James D'Angelo, who uh, was actually a former cop. And they were able to, you know, once they said, all right, this probably is the guy, they were able to get direct DNA from him, from a tissue. And they said, this is the guy right here. And turns out, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it when that happened. And there's a big part in the book about that and, and uh, just how surreal that moment was. It felt like a dream. And I remember just like not believing it and then doing searches that night. I was up all night and doing searches for what uh who this guy was and i find a newspaper.com article an old archive that said he was arrested and he just quit the force after shoplifting i was just like well who just quits a, quits the police force after shoplifting the cop unions usually you know will always defend everybody and then it said he was shoplifting dog repellent and a hammer and i oh, said wow. oh wow this is the guy this has to be the guy and sure yeah. enough you know um they they had nailed him and that's a subject of on June twenty eighth. HBO has a, a docu series about Michelle and the book uh, that I'm in called "I'll Be Gone in the Dark," and it was just you know just an amazing sort of scenario about everything that, that was able to come into play. And then after that case, the floodgates opened, and they've been able to solve 
I think it's close to 100 murders now via uh, genetic genealogy. So I will tell you this, everybody go get your like 23andMe or Ancestry.com, you know, spit in the tube when they send it back to you. It's really easy to go to someplace like Jedmatch, like an open source one, and upload your DNA in there. And you might actually solve a murder from, from a third cousin you would have never known before just by, you know, uh, spitting in a tube and then making that extra effort. That's incredible. I mean, what a story. Like you said, that's the most famous serial killer that no one's ever heard of before. Uh, is this different from the Zodiac killer? Is it the, the yeah, different, different from the Zodiac, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Man, that's crazy putting plates on somebody's back. I, I mean, think about how, what's the safest place? You're in your house with your spouse, you know, in a yeah. locked bedroom, you know, and not only that, he would break into the houses ahead of time. He would make friends with the dogs, like feed them, feed them and stuff. He would go into a couple times. He would get a, a pistol that the guy had and take the bullets out. He could have just stolen the gun, but he would take the bullets out. You know, it was this. Mm-hmm. This thing was. I mean, so many crimes, especially sex crimes, are all about control and power. I mean, this guy was the ultimate power tripper. Wow. So, jeez, oh, yeah, hard to just move on to the next. But something that you brought up that I thought was very interesting um, when we were talking about topics to discuss. There's there's so much to talk about here. And so many ways you could go, but this kind of a, this is a, like a mixed nut version of, of Billy Jensen's work. We got a, <laughs> we got some walnuts here, and we got some cashews there. But let's talk about the Tupac and Biggie uh, case because that's something you brought up to me, and still yeah. very shady, and no one really knows the story. So, kind of give us the background and go through where that case is up, into, up at this point in time. You know the cases; those cases have stalled, and so has Jam Master J. I would I always like to put him in there. No too. one I mean, knows anything are- about that one. Three legends, all you know, shot in public scenarios. You know, I yeah. mean, if you've ever been to Los Angeles, it's a crowded intersection and with a bunch of people there where Biggie was shot, and a guy pulls up, you know, wearing a bow tie and and shoots into his car. You know, Tupac had gotten into a fight with a guy, a uh, gangster. They they think, I think probably Tupac of the three, they know who it was it was orlando it was this guy that he got into that beef with at uh right at the casino and um he he had been subsequently shot after that and killed so um you know but he was shot on a side street right off of the strip and then you know in a recording studio you know uh with jam master jay and it's just the amount of um of w- when you think about legends you know these are three legends and to not know who killed them is pretty insane. And for, you know, especially now as we're, as black lives matter has become so huge, thankfully, you know, Mm. think about it. If, if there's older white listeners that can't imagine if, if we didn't, we still didn't know who John Lennon, who shot John Lennon, you know, right, right, right. It's just like that. You know, these guys were just as influential, just as important to their listeners and to their community as John Lennon was. Of course. Uh, all three of them, you know, and uh, these are not just sort of guys on the outskirts, you know, and to, to, to think that nobody's ever gone to trial for those crimes is really insane and it boggles the mind. So, you know, there have been, uh, you know, the, the cases come up every now and again, there have been a lot of books written about it, but, you know, I think it's just, it's one of those things that uh, you just got to keep on it and you're hoping that somebody will either confess or, you know, I never say never in terms of a crime, you know, uh, somebody would rather confess to it. Somebody will uh, wear a wire and catch somebody. But um, those cases just have always boggled my mind because 
of how important those guys were. And it's not just like, oh, they were important now because they died and then they became martyrs. No, these guys were huge in, in their field, you know. Well, especially Jam Master Jay. Like I had DMC on this podcast and, and they don't even know. Yeah. Like that's just a total assassination that comes out of nowhere. Yeah. And it could, you know, Jam Master Jay was the one that figured out, let's do, let's wrap over, walk this way, you know, which was the entry point for hip hop to go into suburban white culture. You know, this, ev- everything that has happened sprouted out of that that moment in terms of um being amplified that much i mean there were a lot of people before um before uh run dmc but you know what it was like white america was not you know they were still in their bubble listening to you know soft cell or or whatever the hell they were listening to in the early 80s and um you know that that just that talent was able to stretch it out and say, all right, this is this is here to stay. And now it's the most dominant art form right now in America. And I think it's like, um, you know, to think about somebody that was that influential and having them. Yeah, I think a lot of it is uh, a, a race issue as well. You know, right. it's just a matter of, you know, there's there's there and there's other black. There's a guy named Jesse Belvins who was who was murdered after a, a gig down south. And he was supposed to be like the next Sam Cooke. And, uh, and then Sam Cooke was murdered, too. It's just like, yeah, it just happens over and over and over again. And, yeah, the resources uh, were not applied in the same way that they would have. Now, granted, yeah, John Lennon's killer stayed there, you know. Um, John Lennon's killer shot him, you know, and then just, you know, sat down and read a book. But, you know, more could have been, a lot more could have been done with those other uh, investigations. Yeah, and it's always one of those things, too, where it's like, you know, Lennon's was was a stalker, and who knows what kind of dealings were going on with Tupac and Biggie's. You know, the known kind of not mob guys, but there's a whole you know syndicate in in that world, in the rap world, that maybe something went down. But Jam Master Jay was like a preacher. Like, what the mm-hmm. hell did he ever do? You know? Yeah, yeah. And then like you know you th- you know there was all the beef about oh Tupac and Biggie and and the, the yeah. relationships and diss tracks. It was like. You know what? You know who who did diss tracks before that? Lennon and McCartney did diss tracks. <laughs> you know, look, go listen to How Do You Sleep. That's Great all point. about McCartney. You know, I mean, those are diss tracks. <laughs> Great point. Great point. Okay, let's get back on to, the, to where we started the show, which was, you know, we mentioned uh, everyone was talking about Tiger King. And, and a friend of mine said, well, you should watch Don't F*** With Cats. And I was like, okay, is this another cat show? I had enough <laughs> cats. And it's like, no, it's got another cats. So to watch it, if you haven't seen it, it's also on Netflix. And it's funny because I'm from Canada and I wasn't living there at the time, but I remember something about this Luca Magnata. It's a very easy name to remember. And this story is just crazy, especially how it unfolds. Yes. Why don't you kind of go into it, the whole saga of of what this guy was all about? Sure. Yeah. So I wrote a story about this for Rolling Stone. It was a feature in Rolling Stone. And uh, this was like seven years ago or eight years ago. And um, what happened was, is that right around over Christmas, Christmas break, a video had popped up online and it was of, you couldn't see the guy's face, but he's petting these kittens and being all nice to these kittens. And then he suffocates them. And, you know, the rule, the way that the, and the quote actually comes from my article that, that I wasn't involved with the public. They obviously, they read my, my story and then just made a thing on it, which is fine. And it said, the quote comes from my arc, which is rule zero of the internet is don't f- with cats. Yeah. So 
while uh you know over this christmas break they're all the, all these little like facebook groups sprout up and it's like we got to catch this guy we got to figure out who he is and they start trying to figure out you know there was an, a, a very distinctive bedspread where is that from a very distinctive you know listening to what he was listening to in the background where is that from uh what country is he from because it could be anywhere uh there was a vacuum cleaner um which is what he used to, to suck up the air uh, to, to suffocate these cats yeah where is that from so they they start and you know this is what happens with a lot of these cases a lot of people get into it some people lose interest after a while but there are some that uh kind of broke off and started really digging in and using some very interesting ways of uh they thought they found this guy but you know this is one of the things that happens with sadistic killers uh they have a lot of ego so they thought it was this one guy and then this other guy sprouted up in a sock puppet account and said, no, I think it's just the Luca Magnata guy. So they find, they look at Luca Magnata. So now they have a name. They start looking at him and this guy seems like he's everywhere. He's taking pictures of himself in front of sports cars and, and, you know, overseas and he's living like this model's life. And he was, he's saying he's a model and everything, but he's trying to be sort of like a, a celebrity. And there's also a lot of people talking about him too which we later realized was all these sock puppet accounts that he created. So, you know, in order to... Quickly, what's a sock puppet account? Like a sock a fake... puppet account is when you create fake accounts to talk about yourself or something gotcha. like that. So you, gotcha. some people have like 20 accounts that they would be like, you know... Gotcha. They would be. They would say stuff like, yeah, if that was you, you'd be like, yeah, Chris Jericho was way better than Shawn Michaels. And be like, you know, like, there's, there's, like over and over and over again. And be like, wow, there's a lot of people saying it, but I agree. But yeah, so... so um, so this guy was doing that. It was like, who the hell's Luca Magnata? But it's like, oh, there's a guy in California that's talking about Luca Magnata, that kind of thing. So they, they, they are, they're looking at these photos, at trying to see if they could find any clue. And he had posted a picture of himself on a balcony. Um, and I love the way that they did this. And it was like these people that had never met each other working together. And he posted a picture of himself on a balcony. And they could see below the balcony an Esso station. Now, we don't have Esso. We have Exxon in, in America, but you guys have Esso up in Canada. So they said, and then they remember him talking about, they remember another picture that he took that, that they had noticed like the way the streetlights were. And they thought, well, I think he's in Toronto. So they went and they looked at for every Esso station through Google Street Maps. And they would walk with Google Street View and look around, get to the Esso station, look around to see if they could see that high rise where he was. And they did it. Like on the seventh one they found, they did it. And they found it. They go, they contact the, um, the, the landlord. They, were, he, they had just missed him. But by now they had everything. And as you know, there, there is what, what they call a, a triad for serial killers, uh, particularly for what they do as children. It's wetting the bed, setting fires, and torturing animals. So if you have one, there's, if, if, if your kid has one of those three, you know, they say that, you know, just wash them, obviously, and, and start looking at them. Wetting the bed, obviously, is way more common, but this is considered the serial killer triad. They know that this guy's going to do something. This guy's going to escalate. And what they figure out with him is that, you know, they give an entire dossier and they give it to the police in Toronto and they say, this guy's going to kill somebody. Police do nothing. Constantly, the police do nothing. Police do nothing. Eventually... He, had, he posts more videos of him killing animals, but eventually he posts a, um, a video in a very similar manner of him with a man, and he's killing the man and, and dissecting him and cutting him up. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, that goes up online. Then there's a whole other thing there with trying to find him. He chops the man's body up and sends body parts across Canada to different places, political organizations, and then he skips and he goes uh, goes to Europe. And then it then it becomes a manhunt. Then then they're like, all right, he killed a person now, just like these animal activists said he was going to. Now it becomes like you actually get Interpol involved and they find him much like, a, you know, a serial killer that has an, a lot of ego. They find him Googling himself hmm. in a uh, in an Internet cafe. And it's a the way that he, you know, the tenacity of these. Th- that's what I was most interested in is how these citizen detectives were able to track him down when nobody else was. And the the story was laying out like a like a Coen Brothers movie when they, you know, there's two um, animal activists that are the Barbie twins that uh, they pose for Playboy. They were just yeah, like yeah. really attractive uh, women. They're a big animal activists. They got involved and they knew that he wanted to be a porn star, right? So they were going to try and do a sting operation to get him to California. And they enlisted the help of Ron Jeremy. And like, this was like going to be some like sort of weird ramshackle gang that can shoot straight trying to get this guy that they knew was going to kill a person trying to get him to California. And then they were going to like have a porn shoot and then grab him, you know, and, you know, they eventually didn't do it. And, you know, Ron Jeremy was when I interviewed him for that, he was just like, you know, I don't want to, you know. I want my I want my penis to be in the Smithsonian. I don't want to be be in a male than a something. You know, it's like just being, being the jokester that <laughs> right, he is. Right. And um, you know, it was just a just such an odd sort of cast of characters and and just showing what the internet could do. And um, I put that story together and, and put it out on uh, for Rolling Stone. And uh, you know, they made this this documentary about it. And it was just like this kind of stuff individuals can they they you know most cops then wouldn't have done that 99.9% of the cops wouldn't have figured out to look at that photo and then try and um hey it wasn't even on their radar because everybody was just throwing it over the fence because it wasn't their jurisdiction because they couldn't prove where it was, where the the crime was happening with the animals but they were just doing that and doing the the um these these people were able to figure it out and get on his tail when the cops wouldn't and probably couldn't. Well, and the thing is, that's so crazy is, is you start seeing kind of how he's obsessed with basic instinct, uh, the Sharon Stone movie, and then actually orchestrates his interrogation to be just like Sharon Stone's in the movie. That's what started getting yeah. chilling for me. That this guy's so crazy now; he's reenacting his favorite movie while you know in jail. Yeah, and very much the cult of celebrity, uh, trying to be famous. You know, this guy was like trying to be, you know, we always talk about that. Like, don't mention the killer's names and these people are trying to be famous. This guy wanted to do that, but he was also incredibly off kilter. And I've heard like when he's on his meds, he's fine. But it's just, you know, the guy gets off his meds and he, he becomes this monster um, that has two things, you know, he's, he wants to torture th- people uh, or torture animals. And this this animal torture thing, by the way, is a thing that um, is it was a cottage industry and still sort of is. People would pay money and watch videos to watch women crushing baby chicks or kittens oh my gosh. With, um, with high heel shoes. Now, they passed a law saying that was illegal. 
Then they would do this. She, this you is think what, so? This is what they would do then. But but it was only uh, illegal for vertebrates. So they would post videos of them stepping on jellyfish. But then there would be a link in the YouTube page or whatever to a website that would be behind a paywall. So then people could see them stepping on the on the the animals. You know oh that, that yeah, it, it's it was crazy. So it's like it's kind of a fetish type. It's a thing. fetish, yeah, exactly. And, you know, something that I had never heard from and, and opened myself up to this, this world. It was just like, oh, people really did that? And I was, you know, I come from like an alternative journalism background. I've seen a lot of weird shit, but it's just like that kind of thing was like, wow, I had no idea that that was happening. And so how long did it take to uh, arrest Luca Magnotti and, and what's his status right now? His status, I believe he's in, he's guilty, he's in jail. You know, Canada is one of those places. It didn't take that long. It became because it, it became a manhunt right away. Once he killed the person, you know, he was out w- with the animal stuff. He had been he had been free for a while, just doing his thing. But once he killed the victim, it was only a matter of weeks before they were able to grab him. Now, what he's uh, doing now is, you know, he's in jail, and you know, Canada is one of those places that has had in previous times more lenient sentences for for crimes like murder or if somebody flips on somebody else you know before before Luca Magnata the probably the most horrific case in Canada was the Barbie killers with uh, Carla Homolka who's now out of jail because she flipped on her husband and uh you know but they killed they would kill you know pick up kids on the street and kill them and then killed her sister by drugging her and everything and that was like one of the worst crimes ever and then just you know and why were they called the, because this one i remember completely why why were they called the bar uh, the barbie killers because they were they were pretty they looked like ken and barbie you know oh gotcha so it's just like why you know that's what the canadian press which is nowhere near as as brutal as like the british press but still they were just like you know the, the barbie killers because um you know they looked like the all-american really all-american all-canadian i guess pretty right. pretty uh couple and you know had everything going for them but just you know met each other and something just went went off with both of them and then they just did the most some of the most depraved things you you could ever imagine so i i guess when you are working so much you know learning about these serial killers and kind of getting the mindset behind them like what what is the what is the appeal is it a power thing is it uh, more like a Luca Magnotti thing where it's more about your ego and about being talked about the celebrity aspect of it. I think for these, for the serial killers, it's a, it's a cute, I mean, power is the main thing more than anything else. It's power because you have certain serial killers like a BTK, uh, bind, torture, kill, who was in Wichita, or you have Zodiac or you have son of Sam. Now these are guys that were, that were getting off on the power, but their power was part of it was also with the police taunting the police, taunting the press, loving being heard about, loving their their the, the things that they're writing about be on the front cover of papers. Then there were also people that didn't want to mess with the police. They uh, they weren't writing letters. And that's what Golden State Killer was. He was just all about survival. He would call up his victim sometimes. There's a few times that he did that. But he was all about the power of that moment and probably what when you know he took souvenirs, he probably relived that moment over and over and over again. But he was not it was not really with the press. So I think it's all about power. Some of it though is going to be about they need a little bit more of that power, so they do the ego thing, which is the taunting the press, or they do they want to stay sort of, you know, kind of under the radar. 
Wow. Once again, there's so much to talk about. But as we uh, kind of start to, to wind down here, one of your personal questions you mentioned earlier was the uh, Bear Brook murder. I don't know what the status of that is or what the, even what the story is. That's another one that I've never really heard of. Yeah. So in 1985, uh, these two hunters came upon a barrel tipped over on its side. They looked inside, and it turns out that there was human remains in there. It was a woman and a child. They were unidentified, couldn't identify them, didn't know how they got there. Fifteen years later, um, they put a new law enforcement on the case. He took a, he was just walking around that area, sees another barrel, talking about a 55-gallon drum, and opens it up and finds two more female children's bodies in there, remains. So you have a woman and three children, uh, almost a complete family unit that just disappeared and nobody was, you know, there was no missing persons reports for them. They didn't know where, who these people were. They didn't know who killed them. And it remained a mystery for a really, really long time. It turned out the woman was related to two of the children, was the mother of two of the children. And the other one they didn't know about. And um, we just, it was just a complete mystery. And I, I went out there in 2016 to, uh, tour the scene and you know I, w- I really wanted to amplify that case because i just found it horrific the in a in a real you know you know you can listen to on the murder squad we did this case and um you can listen to a podcast called bear brook as well and you and you read my book i've got two chapters in it in in a roundabout way they were able to identify who their killer was before they identified who the victims were so they knew who the killer was, and it turns out this guy was a serial killer, and he had killed a lot of people throughout time in a very similar manner. And I think he has killed other people as well, and that's one of the things that I'm still working on. But they were able to find out who the, the at least the killer was, and then, you know, my book comes out, and I've written all about this. I think probably like three weeks after my book came out, they identified they were able to identify three of the four victims in the barrels. And that was a citizen that did that. Just a citizen detective. She's a librarian. She was looking, you know, doing searches for this thing, trying to find it, and was able to figure out um, who this woman was. Her name was Marley's Honeychurch and two of her children. So we still need to identify the last child that was not related to her. We know it was his daughter, but we don't know who the mother was. So we still don't know where the mother was. We still don't know... um, uh, there's a few other victims that he had been seen, uh, possible victims that he'd been seen with that were probably murdered by him. This is what this guy would do. And I've, I, I, I'm very hesitant to, when people ask me who the worst serial killer is, but I think this guy's the worst of the worst. And this is why. He would sidle up to a woman with children, a uh, single mom. He would begin, he would separate that woman from her family. Uh, you know, her, her parents or whatever. Mm-hmm. And this is back in the day when it was just phones and, and, and mail, and that's it. So people didn't know where those people were, bring them to a new town, molest the children, then kill the mother, Jeez. use those children as a lure to get the next kind of family. Oh, my God. And then once those kids were old enough to to talk, kill those kids as well. And start that cycle again. And we think he did that at least two times. So think about, like, not only is this monster molesting your children, and then he kills you, he's using his chi- your children as bait to get a whole nother family to kill, and then kills your children. I can't oh think of gosh. anything worse than that. That's terrible. Yeah. So uh, it turns out this guy's name is Terry Rasmussen. And um, yeah, it, it, 
you know, what I've been trying to do is create a timeline for this guy. We think that he, I'm working with the detective who put the pieces together. And um, he's a guy out of San Bernardino. Jeez. And this guy was everywhere. This Terry Rasmussen, yeah. I just saw his mugshot. He looks looks like the total serial killer. Yeah, exactly. He's got these like really super clear blue eyes. And he was, you know, the, the way that they caught him was great. And just, you know, there, there's video of him being... Uh, when his jig was up, you know, he was giving false names and they were able to figure out what he did was he would give a false name. They would take his fingerprints, but then they would let him go. He took his fingerprints again. They didn't, he didn't realize within the time span of the last time that he was arrested in that time when he was under suspicion of, 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 of a missing woman that they had changed the technology and they could do fingerprints a lot faster. So he thought he'd be gone scot-free the way that he'd always done it. And then they walk into the room and it's like, all right, we know who you are, dude. They actually didn't know who he was. He was still using fake names, but they were able to get him on a warrant, arrest him, and then he was arrested for that murder. He had killed his sort of wife that he uh, he married in a ceremony that was a Star Trek ceremony. They weren't really married, but they were married. And then she, uh, her name was Ansoon June, and then she went missing. And then he actually, turns out he had killed her and buried her under, I think it was 75 pounds of kitty litter. Oh my gosh. And see, even one of the victims that he killed was identified as his own daughter. Yeah, that was the one, one of the one of the uh, girls in the barrel who were still looking for her name. And there's a case in last uh, in the spring. I went up uh, up north in to this uh, ditch where a refrigerator was found, and there was a woman found in the refrigerator that I think he probably did kill. There's a lot of we still need to identify her. Still trying to get the DNA um, and get the, get the police department to actually do it. And I say I'll I'll pay for the DNA test. Like just let me do it. And um, uh, this woman was again, very similar circumstances, blunt force trauma, tied up with, with um, you know electrical stuff. And he was an electrician, and there was electric electric things in in the barrels with the other women. And she was put in a refrigerator, so a man made object, and then tossed all the earmarks to the uh, the way that this guy acted. And there was also a lot of clues within the um, the refrigerator itself that would lead to areas where this guy was. I mean, I mean that's, that's just pure evil. You know, I mean, there's no other explanation as to how somebody could turn out that way. Yeah, I know. Uh, I know. It's just, uh, I don't, you know, I mean, it's just like, and this was, this was, a, a, you know, when we're talking about the, what drives them, this was a, a, a power thing, pedophilia and power, getting what you want, narcissism, all of that. Does it ever kind of bum you out sometimes when you're kind of, this is your job is to talk about this and find these guys and kind of obsess on their details? You, you know what? Not, it doesn't really bum me out, but you definitely need to, need to get away a little bit. And I get away, yeah. you know, um, cause I know that the victim's families are there. So I do, you know, I'm a bit of a nerd and I like, you know, going to Disneyland or like Harry Potter world, you know, I watch WWE. I, you know, I, I watch, you know, a bunch of, you know, just different sort of goofy things. I'm like binging the office for the fifth time, you know, during under quarantine, you know, <laughs> But, you know, I think it's um, you got to you got to give yourself those outlets, you know, and it was like it was great to just to see, you know, the creativity that, that, that had happened around. You know, that's one of the things I'm learning about in this lockdown is like the creativity that it's, it's forcing you to do be more creative things. You know, it's like, absolutely. You know, I know a lot of your listeners are, are wrestling fans like that graveyard match was so great and so creative. They probably wouldn't have done that if it was regular WrestleMania, you know? No, you wouldn't. There would be no need yeah. to. We just did one in, in AEW, the stadium stampede match. Had there been no 
virus, there wouldn't have been no no need for that, like you said. Yeah, and, and so it's like let's forcing people to do certain things, and it stinks, and it's just like you know the idea of like you know at first it was weird like watching without a crowd, but I love like how Mick Foley was like tweeting out like, can I please be in the next graveyard match? You know. <laughs> well, let's talk about that briefly. You said that you were at the first WrestleMania. I was at the well even before that. I was there when Hogan won the belt. Um, so oh that was gosh. huge. Yeah. Oh man. That was, it was, a, it was a powerful six minutes right there. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I was there when Hogan won the belt. And then I was at the first WrestleMania. I was there. I was uh, probably my, my most proudest moment in wrestling was I am on Saturday night's main event when it was at NASA Coliseum. Cause I was, yeah. And, and there's a picture of this video of me giving the finger and I know why I was giving the finger, because I was giving the finger at Roddy Piper, who I hated at the time and since has become my favorite wrestler because of how he was able to get that reaction out of me. He was just such a, an amazing heel and really just was like such a great troll. And it was like he was saying something bad about the New York Islanders, uh, you know, and I was like, yeah, and I was like, give it in the arm. My dad's like just smiling next to me. And um, but the way that they cut it, I'm giving the finger when they mention Cindy Lauper. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, so you let, and then they you see me in the background because they didn't. Obviously, the sensors didn't catch it, but I'm in the background. I'm like, oh my god, that's me, and I'm like giving the finger. So um, I did. I just I, I got that. I found that on video, like through the WWE network, and I was able to find it. I was like, oh my god, there it is. And um, yeah, no. So uh, and then I I would just you know it was one of those things where I started out in professional writing. I started out in sports, but I would do. I started out writing about hockey fights. I was a hockey player and, right. and I would write about, wrote about hockey fights and I would write about them in the same way that you would write about a boxing match, like who won, who lost, how it affected the game. Uh, Village Voice saw that and, and gave me like, hey, you want to write about like one thing, one article? And then I just kept on writing and then I started pitching more stuff. And then I think the first wrestling thing, I think I pitched a story about Mick Foley because, and I interviewed Mick um, uh, because he's from Long Island and I just thought he was just a really interesting character. I think this was when he was Mankind. And then, um, you know, just like just doing different things here and there um, around the, 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 you know, just trying to do, I just always was a big fan of, um, of, of wrestling. And I remember just like, you know, going to Nassau Coliseum with my dad and, and watching, you know, Tony Atlas and Rocky Johnson and those guys. And man, it's just a, it's a great escape. And it's a great escape now, you know? And then the, and you know, the era that you were in and the whole attitude era, it's funny too, because like I, I, I left wrestling probably like at like 13 and then I got back into it at like 25, you know, and then, right. you know, it's like when the attitude era happened and I was like, I had had, it was like right before, um, like my, my, I think my wife was pregnant and it's like, I had no money. And I was just like, just started watching this. And I was like, oh, watch what's going on with wrestling. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. You know, just with the Monday Night Wars and everything. And I was like, this is great. Sure. So then I started going back again and just, uh, I loved, um, so much of, of, of what they were doing during that attitude era. And then, uh, and then obviously you get, you, you, you know, it's just like some people, some people are like, you know, and then I would get back into it again and then just like see like, wow, that's really good. And just the stuff that's happening with the, uh, the, the women's division, I think is just great. And the, and the NXT and things. So I just, um, now I really, uh, I really dig it. So yeah, this is, this is very cool to be able to talk to you. Well, cool, man, and vice versa to you. Uh, and just one last thing, I, I, I didn't even know about about the documentary for "I'll Be Gone in the Dark" and the whole Michelle McNamara story. So that's that's kind of the, the, her 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 life's work documented in, in this series. I'm sure you're prob probably pretty proud of that. Yeah, it's it's her it's it's her life's work in parallel with her trying to catch this guy. So it's telling the story about Golden State Killer and her story as well. And then um, when she passes and then us picking it up and, and things. So 
Yeah, it's going to be, it's a six part series and it starts on June 28th. It's HBO, so you can't binge it. You just got to come back every week and watch it. Wow, what? What are you talking about? I know, about? sorry. I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Billy, it's been a blast talking to you, man. Like I said, there's so many other topics we, we could discuss. And um, I mean, like, there's some crazy people in the world, but you're doing everything you can to, 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 to bring them in. So much respect on that. And uh, I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. Absolutely. I'd love to be on anytime. Thanks so much, Chris. Thank you, man. Appreciate it.